Welcome to the Conservation Queens podcast. We are five girls who love the earth and have a passion for living a more friend, more friendly life. I mean, that too. Friendly, (laughs) all of the above. Uh, We're real life zoo employees. As always, nothing that we say reflects our organizations and all thoughts and opinions are our own. Try to keep it around PG-13 around here. So if you have younger listeners, you may want to review the content beforehand. Uh, With that, I'm Emily B. Oh, I'm Emily A. (laughs) I like how you put a question mark at the end of it. (laughs) Oh, dear. Hence on tired queen. It's all good. Kenzie, you're here, right? I am also here. (laughs) And I'm Abby. (laughs) We did it. (laughs) 29 episodes and it does not get any easier. (laughs) All right. Um, We're going to start with a fan shout out this week. Um, Wow, wow, wow. Everybody who participated in our World Ocean State giveaway, you guys are amazing. Uh, between us, Beluga Bathco, and Trendy Wendy, we had over 200 people um, <gasps> enter. Oh, which wow. Is crazy. Took me quite some time to sort that out, but that's okay. Um, and our winner was Shelby. So Yay. she's already received her goodies from Beluga Bathco. I think her stuff from Trendy Wendy is probably on its way as well as the Conservation Queen stuff. So get excited and we hope to host more giveaways in the future because that was really fun. And we got a lot of new friends. So if you're new here, welcome to the chaos. It's always like this. It's true. Never gets better. <laughs> uh, <laughs> we're going to move right along to conservation updates. Katie's not here with us this week. That's all right. She'll be back next episode. Um, so a couple updates. These are kind of sad updates, but that's okay. Uh, we need to have the good and the bad. We can't just be all sunshine and rainbows. I've got lots of happy zoo news, so hopefully that perfect. Even well, I will bring everybody down, and you can bring them back up. Great. So uh, I don't know if y'all have heard, but the Florida manatees are having a time here in Florida. Um, they have. There's been a unusual mortality event, or UME declared. Uh, this year, because Florida Fish and Wildlife has said that we are, have lost over 800 manatees this calendar year alone. Um, a normal year for manatee deaths, like the whole year, is around 200. Um, so we are already far past that. Um, and they're attributing over 600 of those deaths to the seagrass die-offs. Now, the seagrasses here in Florida are the manatees' primary um, food source. And the reason that they're dying off is because these algal blooms, if you've heard of red tide, that kind of all goes together here. Um, we'll get to a little bit more about these algae blooms in a couple points here. But um, they have finally declared this a UME, which means that they can get a lot more funding and a lot more um, government help, which is good. Um, so hopefully we can figure out a way to reverse this because those poor manatees, we were doing so good. We got them from endangered to threatened, and now we're going the wrong direction. So. Well, I know a lot of the zoos in the area, too, have been really contributing. I know there's a lot of zoos that have, if they have extra um, aquarium space, they're taking in manatees to help out all the rescuers as much as we possibly can. Yes. So good things are happening, but um, I'm glad they finally kind of got that designation because that does help them with um, efforts to help. So um, completely different note. So apparently, I just literally Googled conservation news because Katie normally does this. And I was like, what should I look for? This was literally the first, ep- the first um, article I found. It basically, so they've been, we've talked about this before. They're reducing, or sorry, reducing, reintroducing Tasmanian devils to parts of their habitat um, because their population had been so decimated. Mm-hmm. They had kind of lost a lot of their habitat. Um, so they've been being reintroduced as their numbers grow, which is good. However... <laughs> Um, scientists really did a doozy here. They reintroduced these Tasmanian devils to an island off off of Tasmania, a small island, and accidentally uh, decimated all of the little blue penguins that were living there. Big rip to the fairy penguins. Uh, Some scientist critics of this are saying this was totally avoidable. You should have known this would happen, Um, which I think I would have to agree, but I don't have all the facts. I don't know. Uh, so interesting news, you know, just goes to show you wildlife management is very difficult. There's always something you're not considering. And uh, they got all of them. Yeah. Well, it's a very small island. So it wasn't like it was a huge population. Um, and maybe, who knows, maybe they can reintroduce a little blues someday. Who knows? I don't know. As long as they get rid but... of all the Tasmanian devils. Jeez. <laughs> 
anyway, um, there's that. And then this one I thought was fun because it's a little close to home for us. Um, there are five different environmental groups, most of them centered around the Tampa Bay area here in Florida. And they are suing our governor, Ron DeSantis, good riddance, um, and the Florida <laughs> state government uh, for mismanaging the waste leak at Piney Point in Florida, which is, again, on the Tampa Bay. Um, so this leak had a discharge of over 200 million gallons of toxic waste into the Tampa Bay. We hate it. Um, which is causing the algae bloom, which is causing the red tide, which is causing the manatee die-offs and uh, the fish die-offs that are happening out there. So somebody's finally going to get in trouble for this, hopefully. We'll I, see. How many more years do we have left with him? Uh, 2022 must be the race. Yes, he's years. up for re-election next year. So hopefully so we, we have to out. vote him out of office. Well, we try. Uh, my best explanation for Florida when it comes to politics is that if Florida was given a choice on voting between a free ice cream for life or a kick in the head, it would still be a close race. <laughs> That's true. <laughs> Not wrong. So my fellow Floridians, make sure to vote out Ron DeSantis. And uh, friends who have Floridian friends, Friends don't let friends vote for Ron DeSantis. Goodness. All right. Abby, what you got for zoo news? I have got uh, one sad zoo news and many happy zoo news. Let's hear them. Um, so sad zoo news, as we mentioned last episode, Zoo Tampa had all of the rays uh, in their touch enclosure suddenly die. And they have finally released what they believe happened after they did all of their tests. And Emily, you correct me if I'm wrong, but they believe that there was an unknown malfunction in the filtering system, which led to over aerated water, which I believe means there's just too much gas in the water. And it caused a disease similar to the bends that like scuba divers get, but it caused it in the rays instead. So yeah, from my understanding, they basically suffered gas embolisms, which is very similar to the bends. Um, if you're familiar with that, basically gas gets into their bloodstream and in such amounts that it caused their death. So, but they're going to make a brand new enclosure, which is exciting. Yes. I like, I love that solution that it was like, look, we're not going to try to fix this because we don't know exactly how it happened. So we're just going to go out a whole new one. And I'm like here for it. And so we should all go to the grand opening of that. I think. I mean, that's like right up my alley. So yes. <laughs> um, some other fun zoo news the world's oldest living gorilla celebrated his 60th birthday this week at zoo atlanta Ooh. so happy birthday ozzy that's very impressive amazing an old gorilla i'm um, an old gorilla <laughs> relatable um another kind of fun one the houston zoo is helping parrots survive a volcano interesting so okay. There's an island in the Bahamas called St. Vincent, and apparently a volcano there erupted right at the start of hatching season for the St. Vincent parrot. Uh, they only believe there are 500 individuals left in the wild, so they are uh, not an endangered species quite. They're technically considered vulnerable, I checked. Um, but they were con the conservationists in on the island were concerned because the eruption took place right after new chicks should have started hatching. So not too good as far as like keeping population numbers up. So the Houston Zoo reached out. Um, they have a partnership with the St. Vincent conservation organizations that are helping these parrots. And they reached out with funding and ideas to help save the vulnerable birds, which is really, really cool. I love it. Um, I have a very quick little zoo news. It's a good uh, my, my home zoo, Niabi Zoo in Coal Valley, Illinois, got a brand new rhino. So... <laughs> If you've listened to our podcast for a long time, I actually told the story about how they used to have elephants and because the AZA guidelines changed, they had to get rid of the elephants, um, which is fine. They're in another zoo now. Um, and they were holding camels in their habitat for a while, but the goal was to turn it into a rhino habitat. And they finally received a rhino. Very exciting. Oh, um, he's a male white rhino. His name is Keto. He's adorable. My friend was actually there today, Sarah. Shout out for sending me those photos. Um, she sent me a bunch of pictures of him sleeping. He's the cutest thing I've ever seen. Um, he just got there within the last month and he's going to get a lady friend in the next couple of months. <gasps> babies. Uh, so hopefully we can have some babies. We love it. Super exciting. Um, I have some PTP news. 
Oh boy. Oh, I know. I was so, I was searching zoo news and this was very exciting. Uh, it doesn't really matter, but it was a pencil tailed porcupine in news. So we're going to talk about it. So it does matter. Continue. It matters to me. Yeah. Um, the Potter Park Zoo in Michigan welcomed their first ever prehensile tailed porcupine. <gasps> Her name is Sophie, and she'll be living in the reptile and bird house, which is an interesting place, but also that means that she gets to do with the birds. So it sounds like the perfect place to visit. So now everyone needs to go to the Potter Park Zoo in Michigan. Let's go. We'll add it to the list. All right. On to uh, the next best thing, Beluga News. Beluga news, the best news, my favorite, uh, everything. Okay, so we've actually got some fun beluga news. Um, if you have ever wanted to name a beluga whale, if you ever <laughs> wanted to name a beluga, now's your chance. Uh, Mystic Aquarium in Connecticut is auctioning off the rights to name the three new belugas that they just got from Marine Lane Canada. So that's super exciting. If you have a spare couple million dollars, uh, maybe, you know, <laughs> throw your name in the hat there. Or, you know, throw my name in the hat, whichever you prefer. Um, but that's really cool that people are going to get the chance to name them. That's very sweet. How often do you get to name such a big charismatic megafauna? Not often. If it's, um, excuse me, on this podcast, we call it big sexy, big megafauna. sexy megafauna. Exactly. Okay. Another piece of beluga news this week. So the Alaska Beluga Monitoring Partnership and the Alaska Wildlife Alliance just announced that this spring, um, this past spring, volunteers were able to ID over 200 individual belugas in the Cook Inlet population. So this is the population we're always talking about, the critically endangered one. And um, using this data from the volunteers, super helpful to help them know who's there, who's coming back, uh, all of that stuff. So that's really fun. Yeah, uh, that is especially wonderful news for me. <laughs> Are you going there? I'm going to Alaska in August. <laughs> oh, my God. So I may or may not see some wild belugas. If anyone out there has been to Alaska and has some pro tips, send it uh, our way. <laughs> I'm, I'm jealous. so jealous. It'll be glorious. I'll make sure to take lots of pictures and tell them that you love them. Good. All right. <laughs> and with that, one lady screaming you. off the boat, Emily <laughs> loves you. <laughs> I mean, that's the content I'm here for. Um, all right, we are going to get into the thick of it. Abby, take it away. <laughs> all right, my friends. Well, this week, uh, we are continuing our biome series, and we're talking about temperate deciduous forests. Woo! We can all be owls. That was like an owl chorus. <laughs> I mean, love owls there. <laughs> there are a ton of owls that live in this. Uh, it's also my home biome. This is where I, like, did when I was an undergrad, we spent our time running around to deciduous forests. So I'm a fan. Um, yeah, so I'm going to give you kind of an overview of what exactly that means. Because if you don't know what temperate or deciduous or I guess forest means, you're, you're really confused right now. That's okay. Um, so temperate deciduous forests are located on every continent except Antarctica. Surprise! Temperate forest uh, is a forest, which is a bunch of trees, that experiences four seasons. So that means that leaves change color in autumn, fall off before winter, and then come back in the springtime. And that's an adaptation that helps uh, the plants survive the cold temperatures. These forests are mostly consistent of broadleaf forests, which Kenzie will kind of explain. Um, these trees are kind of cool because they go into a dormancy stage in the winter and that allows them to survive until the spring. And a lot of the trees have a lot thicker bark on them to help them survive the cold, which is awesome. Uh, there's an average temperature range of negative 30 degrees Celsius to 30 degrees Celsius, which is negative 22 degrees Fahrenheit to 86 degrees Fahrenheit. And the average temperature is a perfect 50 degrees Fahrenheit. I don't know about you guys. That's like my happy place. Yikes, that sounds freezing to me. Yeah, that sounds cold. I've, I've been in those temperatures. So that's cold for me. That's why we all fly uh, to the, the sunshine state. It's not why I fly to sunshine state. Well, in Alaska at all. <laughs> yeah, I don't know. I, that's like my favorite temperature because you can wear a shorts and a sweatshirt without a problem. It's true. Not too hot, not too cold. All you need is a light jacket. Yes, it's, it's April 24th. The perfect date, the perfect, the perfect date. temperature. Uh, so we talk about rainfall a lot. We talked about those deserts and rainforests for deciduous, uh, temperate deciduous forests. Rainfall is between 30 and 59 inches every single year. They also receive precipitation, not participation. 
patient. <laughs> it's a hard words. word. Big words are hard. They receive uh, precipitation as well through snow, which is super fun. Um, so a lot of the animals there have cool adaptations to live in the snow and the plants too. Uh, now you might remember we talked about tropical rainforests, which to some degree can be considered deciduous forests, but they don't receive four seasons. So tropical forests lie between um, the the two uh, tropic of tropic of cancer, tropic of Capricorn. Thank you. I had it in my head and couldn't say it. It's okay. Um, basically, temperate zone is right outside of that zone. Um, so like United States, Europe, all those different places. Uh, and you might remember talking about the canopy when we talked about rainforests too. Uh, for a reminder, the canopy was a layer of the rainforest that made kind of a roof over the top, which did not let much light through and, did, and allowed like the water not to just destroy all the plants with the amount of rain that it gets. Um, so one of the major differences between a tropical and a deciduous forest or a rainforest and deciduous forest is that canopy. So temperate forests do not have a canopy. Um, they allow more light to reach the forest floor and that allows for really great, as in a lot of biodiversity in plant and animal species, which is pretty cool. So rainforests have layers like a cake. Deciduous forests have zones like the ocean. <laughs> Let's name the zones, the zones, the zones. Let's name the zones of the deciduous forest. It's not quite, <laughs> it's not as good. We'll leave that to just try to figure that stuff out. Um, so the four or the five zones they have going from the top down. The top is called the tree stratum zone. That are those are the large trees that are between sixty and hundred feet tall. So the big boys. Uh, the next zone, I'm assuming, is much farther down. I couldn't really find a lot of information about, like, the exact measurement. Um, but it's the small tree and sapling zone, which are the small trees and the saplings. Aptly named. Yeah. You know what? Most of these are pretty self-explanatory. <laughs> Not going to lie. Like, the next zone is the shrub zone. Guess what's in the shrub zone? Shrubs. Oh, my gosh. You got it. And the zone after that is the herb zone. What's in the herb zone? Herbs! Oh my herbs. gosh, oh my gosh you're killing it. And then what's game. the ground zone? Uh, the not, ground. <laughs> well, there's more than just the ground. It also contains the lichens and the mosses, which are essential for a lot of these forests. So pretty cool. Um, if we're talking about animals that live in this biome, which of course we love talking about, it includes eagles and bears and wolves and chipmunks and squirrels and deer and macaques and wheels, weasels and platypuses, depending Amazing. on which forest that you're in. I'm sorry, did you say platypuses? Yes, technically platypus live in the deciduous forest biome. Okay, you learn something new every day. I mean, macaques <laughs> too, apparently the monkeys like it too. Um, for this episode, we are, are going to focus mostly on North American temperate deciduous forests. Sorry, international listeners. Uh, we live here. We have the most experience here. Uh, it's one of the most widespread biomes throughout North America, so it's one of the ones that we can talk about a lot. Uh, something cool about these animals is that many of them go through hibernations or migrations, uh, and Emily will kind of cover that. Uh, but we all know that you can't see the forest for the trees. So let's look at the trees, Kenzie. Well, howdy, hey there, folks. Buckle up. <laughs> Ranger We're Kenzie about here. to go uh, take a trip into the past. I'm currently having war flashbacks to my dendrology class in college. <laughs> <laughs> So uh, much like Abby, I also spent a vast majority of my university days tramping through the woods. So I'm going to formally apologize before I get into it. Uh, I was not the best at dendrology class, but you know what? I still enjoy trees. So Kenzie, I have a professor. I, I'm sorry. I have a feeling that you're probably better at dendrology than all of us. The bar is on the floor. <laughs> <laughs> and I'm digging. <laughs> Same. All right. So see the forest through the trees goes the old expression. But what trees are we talking about exactly? Well, that's a great question. Why does that rhyme? Depending on the forest, you'll find that the answers vary. Um, as Abby, you just explained earlier, temperate deciduous forests are composed of broadleaf trees that drop their leaves during a particular season. 
now for the sake of time, we'll be focusing on about four trees that are found commonly within the eastern half of North America. Now throughout the forest here in North America, you have beech trees, maple, birch, hickories, oaks, willows, chestnuts, aspens, et cetera, et cetera. The list goes on and on and on and on. Kenzie, I've got a question. Yes, ma'am. How can you tell us an aspen? Because it is. <laughs> it is the way that it is. It is. Because of the way that the way it, it is. is. Uh, for listeners who may not understand that reference, go up on, what, what's it called on YouTube? Nature? Nature. 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 Yeah, Nature Watch. And also, uh, that means you are too, you're too young to be listening to this podcast. <laughs> <laughs> yes. <laughs> Don't make me feel older than I already am, Abby. <laughs> Sorry. No, you're fine. Yes. So I'm going to be looking at four trees, specifically the American beech tree, maple trees, hickories, and oaks. Now, American beech trees and maple trees typically are a little bit more prevalent up in the northern half of the forest here along the eastern seaboard, whereas hickories and oaks a little bit more so down south. So American beech trees are characterized by dark green foliage and this really pretty smooth silvery bark. Every time I look at them, they just make me think of elves from Lord of the Rings. I don't know why, but that's how I remember them. Now these trees enjoy shade and well-watered sites. They are also monoecious. Have you guys ever heard that term before? No. It's like delicious. Well, it, it does rhyme. Uh, monoecious means that they have flowers of the, both sexes on the tree itself. So it has female and male mm -hmm. flowers on the tree. Uh, beech trees, American beech trees, are an important source of food for wildlife, uh, but they usually don't produce a sizable crop of nuts until they're around 40 years old. Oh, um, macaroni. Oh, yes, indeed. Uh, they are also important habitats. Can't speak today. They are also important habitats for lichens and fungi that actually grow rather abundantly on their bark. Lichens mm -hmm. and fungi play an integral part in the forest and really any ecosystem you can find them in, uh, especially fungi as they are decomposers, helping return nutrients back to the soil. And then they're neat. Yeah, they are really neat. And then, of course, we have maple trees. Now, maple trees are probably some of the most well-known kinds of trees here in North America. There are actually about 128 species of known maple. And according to the fossil record, these bad boys have been around for 100 million years. Whoa. Yeah. Now, easily the most well-known of the maples is, of course, the sugar maple, because who doesn't love good maple syrup? Am I right? Uh, that is one thing I do not skimp on at the grocery store. Rip to my wallet. <laughs> I mean, it's the it's so good, though. It really is good. It's fantastic. My uh, friends used to make it. Are you serious? Yes. It was, oh, my God. Like, not even the grocery store can live up to the fresh maple syrup that I had my friends make. It was, oh. Well, I will let my imagination take me there. Uh, well, in addition to being absolutely delicious, uh, sugar maple also is known to boast some of the best colors for fall foliage. It is actually a really big draw to the economy along the northeastern United States, especially during the fall when all the leaf peepers come out to tour. <laughs> It'll be me in approximately 40 years. Uh, sugar maples can also be identified, fun fact, by these dark marks on their bark that's from the sugar or the sap that comes out of the tree so if you see a maple tree and you want to know if it's a sugar maple tree look for dark marks on the bark that's the only reason i was able to identify them properly when i was in dendrology class or lick it yeah <laughs> <laughs> oh you, i mean you could you could lick things uh whether or not there will be disastrous outcomes to said licking that's you know that's a risk you gotta take I'm just saying. Well, moving away from that. <laughs> oh, boy. So hickories are often found in the bottomlands of North American forests. Uh, actually, you can find a lot of them kind of near swamp edges. Uh, this is where the soil is rich and well watered. They're known for a very strong root system, and they can grow up to heights of 100 feet. In addition oh, to boys. producing mast, mast is actually a term referring to a crop of nuts. Catch me at Dendro. Uh, for wildlife, their anthropogenic uses include building material and for cooking. So if you guys ever have hickory smoked ham or barbecue, 
Thank the hickory tree. Next time you see one, give it a big old hug. It's not weird. It's it's not. Well, I mean, it's a little weird, but it's okay. It's not <laughs> and then last but not least, oaks. So oaks are actually a genus of the beech tree family. There are over 600 oak species. And their genus name is Quercus, one of the few things I actually remember from my forestry classes. They are notoriously long-lived species. Some of them can live up to about a thousand years. And they are also reputed to be one of the hardiest species out there. Now here in the American South, the live oak is particularly notable because it has these beautiful wide-spreading branches. They just create this massive arc and they're often draped with Spanish moss. So it's a very iconic tree. We have a lot of them down here in Florida as well. And a fun little fact you guys can look into, have you ever heard of cork flooring before? Yes. yes. Yeah, so that is a sustainable building material that is derived from oaks. Neat. Yeah. So trees are really fascinating. Uh, there is so much to tell about trees, but unfortunately we just don't have the time. Um, and I feel like each individual tree could easily take up an episode in and above itself. But as poor as I did in dendrology, to any classmates who may be listening to this, I am so sorry. I really did enjoy my dendrology and forestry classes because just like you said, Abby, I got to tromp around the woods and Eastern Tennessee is quite famous for its trees. So definitely go out and take a look, look at some trees. See if you can find what trees live in your backyard if you have one. Nice. I have a big old magnolia tree in my front yard. <gasps> I say nice. big old, it's actually very small. I have a small <laughs> magnolia with four paws and a tail. But I, I feel like it. the tree may <laughs> not be as fun to hug as your magnolia. No, the tree's really nice. They have these beautiful glossy green leaves, and on the underside of the leaves, it's almost like a, this fuzzy brown material. Trees are weird. They're wonderful. They're wonderful. <laughs> All right. Well, speaking of really wonderful, animals. <laughs> Alrighty. So uh, we kind of alluded to some of the animals that exist out there, but I'm gonna dive in a little bit deeper. So you've got your typical, your bobcats, rabbits. Bison, otters, porcupines. Yeah. <laughs> uh, skunks, moose, coyotes, and foxes. Um, I learned something new. A musk rat. It is not a rat. It's actually kind of a beaver. <laughs> they, they're pretty cute. They're I, I don't agree. Um they <laughs> I had a I had some that lived by my house when I was younger. Um so when I would go like on a walk with my dad or whatever, we'd see them and then you would think it's a beaver, and then you'd just be disappointed. But why? They're basically like a mini beaver. <laughs> yeah, I've seen a lot of them as roadkill, though. It kind of it kills it. Oh, sad. Okay, anyways, moving on. Um, <laughs> uh, there's also the American badger. Uh, just as evil as the honey badger, in case you're wondering. <laughs> um, and there's the white-tailed deer and chipmunk. Uh, Emily B. said that they deserve a roast, so would you like to uh, roast away here? <laughs> I just have something to say about the freaking white-tailed deer. <laughs> so if you have lived in an area where white-tailed deer are abundant, a.k.a. a good chunk of the United States, yes. mostly the Midwest, you already know what I'm about to say, is that these darn deer are, no offense to the deer out there if you're listening, these deer are the dumbest animals I have ever encountered. And I have a golden retriever with two brain cells. I swear, you could walk right up to a deer, look it dead in the eye, and there's absolutely nothing going on up there. Done nothing it. Nothing upstairs. Done it. True. <laughs> Actually not wrong. <laughs> they leave their babies in the most inconvenient places, which to be fair, we did take over a lot of their habitat. It's not really their fault. We're living in their home. But... These mama deers, they'll just leave their babies underneath your car. They'll leave their babies in the middle of the street. Like, they're just not, they're not that bright. And they will see a car coming, like, 70 miles an hour and be like, yeah, I could beat it. <laughs> and they win. And they win. And they win because they're so big. And they, they kill people because they jump out in front of their cars and go through their windshields. There is nothing going on in that noggin. 
nothing, not a, not a thought behind those eyes. Oh, you look at them <laughs> and you just hear the wee music playing in the background. Yep, you got it. Not even. Um, I'm pretty sure it's just like you know the little DVD logo that used to like bounce around, <laughs> and you're like oh waiting for God. it to hit the corner, and yep. it never quite hits the corner. <laughs> that's that's what I imagine. Oh, yes. And then chipmunks, uh, the only reason I brought them up is because they just seem like very little pesky little animals and they're always running. I've oh never seen God. one calm chipmunk in my life. They're always running. Why are you running? Why are you running? They got to find all the nuts, okay? No, 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 no. They don't. So I have a bone to pick with chipmunks. Um, Go for it. I, I have a problem with them because as somebody who is a zoo camp counselor, you'd be standing there in front of giraffes and gorillas and wolves and what do all the kids do oh my gosh look at the chippy and you're like yeah they do that with squirrels too and you're like really yeah guys you can see those any day of the week and we are watching a giraffe training right now like and you're gonna look at the chipmunk uh and they get in everywhere and they eat some of your supplies and it's awful like i said pesky they're pesky and the only chipmunks i like are chip and dale and that's it See, I blame the children. <laughs> I mean, I blame them, but like it also interrupted many of my lesson plans. So I started to kind of hate the chipmunks. Fair. Uh, anyways, moving on. Uh, can't forget the mountain lion slash cougar slash puma slash panther. Just pick a freaking name, people. I'm it's regional. All of them. <laughs> anyways, uh, there's also the black bears and grizzly bears. Um, black bears are doing pretty fine population-wise. Uh, grizzly bears, on the other hand, have greatly suffered. Um, I saw that grizzly bears were actually once recorded to be so high in numbers that they traveled in herds. What? That sounds terrifying. <laughs> um, but unfortunately now there are states in the U.S. that they no longer exist in, um, there's also wolves, and they're also not doing so great. The When I looked at the uh, population of wolves across North America, where it used to be and where it's at now, it is very sad. I was going to uh, say, I um, because I'm from Minnesota, we talk a lot about wolves because that's like a big deal as far as Minnesota ecology goes. Um, and we've they've been making a comeback, but... Uh, we used to take field trips to the International Wolf Center, which is right by Canada. And seeing those maps was like a really stark realization of like how much damage humans have done to that single animal. Mm-hmm. And if you go back to white-tailed deer and why they're annoying, part of the reason why they're annoying is because they don't have the wolves as predators anymore. So yeah. their population spirals out of control. So anybody who doesn't like deer hunting, I'm sorry, you're wrong, because we need that population control because we got rid of the apex predator so or or we just reintroduced the wolves (laughs) they've tried though like that's the thing is they've tried but they don't survive because a lot of the places that they used to be are now urban areas and then people get scared and they report them as nuisance animals and it's this whole spiraling thing so it seems like a really easy issue but i can tell you it is like one of the most difficult issues the midwest especially the upper midwest is facing right now is with wolf population control and figuring out how to reintroduce them fair um the wolves that are even found in this area is the gray wolves and all i could find was also the critically endangered red wolves which are like slim to none um correct me if i'm wrong there could be way more other wolf species out there but that is the best i could find those those sorry i know a lot about this because again minnesota um those are the two species when people talk about like timber wolves and other kinds of wolves it's usually subspecies they're referring to it's kind of like the mountain lion thing where it's just different regions call them different things but the wolves that you think of when you think of wolves in the united states are gray wolves they are all the same species um and then red wolves are a little bit different there's some in mexico there's one teeny weeny population i believe in the carolinas that are not doing great so yeah, I actually yeah. knew a guy in college who worked on a red wolf project in South Carolina, and I actually got to visit a facility where they had a few of them and were breeding them. But again, kind of like what's going on in Minnesota, they're having issues with the local population 
trying to convince them that it's okay to release these predators back into the wild. And obviously you have a lot of rural communities and farming communities out there. And it's a really hard thing to sell people on. Yeah. So yeah, it's, it's not, it's not great. And also too, the genetics are so diluted Yeah. with red wolves. They were able to find some genetic reservoir of them in Texas of all places. And then they moved a few to the Carolinas, but they had inbred so much with dogs that pretty much the pure strain of red wolf is essentially gone. We're almost right. gone. Yeah. Yeah. So if you want to learn more about wolves in particular, the international wolf center has a really good website for it um if you're in minnesota and you want to go visit it it's a really cool place to visit they have all the different kinds of wolves and they do a lot of cool conservation things you can also even go track wolves which is kind of fun we do like that. that well for uh a little bit lighter of a mood can't forget the dreaded bugs dreaded these cicadas ever, okay, no. ma'am this is where these cicadas come from <laughs> i was gonna say hold the phone have any of you ever had a family member at dad at James um, grab the little cicada shells and put them on your freaking pillow? Then I don't want to hear it. Gross. <laughs> Literally, the cicadas screaming triggers me. <laughs> and this is the year for cicadas. It's true. Thankfully, no. down here in Florida, we don't have those crazy ones. I hate it. Um, there's also one bug that I will say is pretty cool is the American bearing beetle. They almost went extinct, and thanks to some zoos, uh, they bred them in human care and then released them. So now they're uh, starting to thrive again. They're a carrion beetle, if you didn't know. Uh, but that's the only positive bug I have to talk about. <laughs> what? Um, <laughs> of course, there's a lot of bird and reptilian and amphibian species, but most of those species are pretty much found spread across North America. Um Unless, Abby, you are the bird nerd. Is there a bird only found in a temperate deciduous forest? Um, maybe Florida scrub jays Okay, one that comes to mind. Um, black-capped chickadees, Carolina chickadees. Uh, what about wrens? Wrens, affiliated yes. woodpecker. Affiliated woodpeckers. Um, so, yeah, Emily, there's a bunch, actually. Okay. <laughs> Any, if you think Probably about, me. if you think about North American songbirds, most of those birds primarily live in deciduous forests because where they get all their food from because they're all like seed eaters and stuff like that. So uh, I just think about like how they migrate and I'm like, mm, they probably live in a lot of habitats along the way, but primarily that makes sense. Well, yeah. And a lot of actually, especially um, in deciduous forests, a lot of birds don't migrate just like the trees. They have like special adaptations to help them survive in the winter or they'll make what are called caches which is where they store like a bunch of nuts or a bunch of seeds in one place so if you ever see a bird that looks like the same bird going back to your bird feeder like over and over and over again and like not really eating the seeds it's because they're hiding it in a place so when the winter comes around they uh have enough food ah uh, gotcha uh love that though for them kind of like squirrels um the last thing I'd like to mention are keystone species. They're the ones that keep the forests afloat. I'm laughing because of the <laughs> The owls. Oh, owls are in forests. <laughs> oh, boy. Um, so I'm so sorry. It pains me to say it, but white-tailed deer are considered a keystone species here. Okay, yes, but not when they're overpopulated. Correct. I mean, they yeah. are still keystone, but that's like, it, it. there's too much of a good thing. Right. The reason they're a keystone species is because their feeding activity greatly affects other animals and plants. Um, another keystone species are bears. Bears regulate healthy populations of other animals that they feed on, and they're also a seed disperser when they poop. <laughs> um, wolves, we've talked about it before um, in one of our national park talks, how they're keystone species and how they can affect an entire ecosystem. Cough, cough, Yellowstone. Um, they're the top predators and manage the populations of the rest of the animals that live there. And then we got to give a special shout out to gopher tortoises. They do not get all the love and attention that they thoroughly deserve. But they create burrow habitats for over 350 animals. That's a lot of animals, people. And it's just a wee tortoise. They're really cute. They are really cute. 
Um, the ones we talked about how wolves are endangered, but gopher tortoises are also endangered. So if you live in an area that has gopher tortoises, there's a gopher tortoise app you can download that geotags your location and you take a picture of the gopher tortoise and it sends it to fish and wildlife for them to monitor the area. We love it. All right. I think it is my time. My Do time tortoises too. hibernate? Oh, well, let me tell you. <laughs> Sorry. What a segue, Abby. What a segue. I'm trying. It's okay. Um, so we talked about one of the major uh, designations of a temperate deciduous forest is that it goes through seasons. Now, if you've ever heard of hibernation, now is the time. So when it gets cold, what do all these animals do? Well, for starters, it's not just a giant sleep, as you may have previously heard in every elementary school science class you've ever had. They've all lied. <sighs> So hibernation is much different than sleeping. It's not like they just curl up, go to bed, and don't wake up for three months. It's very different. So hibernation, um, many animals that live in temperate deciduous forests do hibernate through the winter. Um, and hibernation is an extended state of torpor or inactivity. So torpor and hibernation are a little bit different. Um, but hibernation is kind of like under the umbrella of torpor. It basically just means they are very inactive. Um, animals that hibernate, they slow down their body functions, including their metabolism. They slow down their heart rate, heart rate. They slow down their breathing. They slow down their brain activity to basically nominal levels. And this is all to conserve energy. It's all an energy game when you're an animal. How do I maintain enough energy to make it through the winter when you don't have the uh, access to food, you don't have the access to the sunshine, that sort of thing. Um, so animals who hibernate in temperate Deciduous forests do so, like I said, to wait out the winter months um, because their energy is precious, but hibernation is not restricted to cold weather. So not all animals that hibernate live in temperate deciduous forests. Um, some animals that live in the tropics will hibernate and they're doing this to escape excessive heat. Um, some animals that live in you know, any other area, they can hibernate to escape periods of scarcity. Um, I read an article about how um, hedgehogs will hibernate if they are experiencing a food shortage, which yeah. is kind of interesting. Um, so during hibernation in cold weather, so in temperate deciduous forests, so during hibernation in cold weather, um, the animal that is hibernating will periodically wake up. So they're not, like I said, they're not sleeping. They'll periodically wake up to warm themselves up because hibernation um, will also involve a drop in their core body temperature. So when they are waking up, they're using up valuable energy. They basically wake up, warm up, go back to sleep or go back to hibernation. See, even I'm doing it. My elementary school science classes are failing me. Um, now, as the climate warms, as the climate change as well, climate change, it's almost like it's real. Um, as this happens, the animals that hibernate are waking up more and more often. And because of this, they are more active during periods of awake time, meaning they're using more energy, which means... They are getting forced out of hibernation earlier and earlier because they are using up too much energy in the middle of winter when it's warm, um, as we have all experienced. Um, so this is not great. We need to do better for these freaking animals because they come out of hibernation in you know January and then there's a snowstorm in February. It's not looking good. Yeah, the Midwest is... Uh... There, let's just say there was one week in college when on Sunday it was 70 degrees and then by the next Saturday, it was negative 20. Right. So In one week. So evolutionarily, you know, these animals have developed the ability to hibernate because, you know, they have that slow fall, getting colder, getting colder. And then, you know, it's supposed to be cold from, you know, November, December, all the way through February, March, when these animals come out of hibernation. But because of climate change, it's throwing everything through a loop. Um, so who is hibernating out there? So we mentioned a few of them, but um, most people, their first one when you think of hibernation is a bear. Now, I read many articles that have basically argued and said, nope, bears are not even hibernating. The number one hibernator isn't even a hibernator. Isn't that crazy? Um, yeah, it's, it's, yeah it's, a, it's because they don't wake up like the other animals do. Um, they don't have to. They are so big and so wonderful and cozy. They don't have to. So they're basically out there actually hibernating, you know, completely, I would say unconscious might not be the right word, but in the state of inactivity for a hundred days or more. 
Um, and so scientists think that they might be in their own league of super hibernators, which is pretty wild. And it depends on the bear too, I think, because I'm pretty sure if you look at like polar bears and grizzly bears compared to black bears, because they give birth during their hibernation, there is some activity. What I was always taught is that like they're in a state of torpor rather than being in hibernation. Right. So it's like this weird, I don't know, nobody can agree. It's true. Um, so some other animals that hibernate, mostly small mammals. Um, so squirrels, groundhogs, chipmunks, skunks, you name it. If it's a small mammal, it probably hibernates. Um, now you may be asking yourself, what about turtles? What about snakes? What about other reptiles and other cold-blooded animals? Well, they have their own fun word. Um, it's called brumation, um, and it is similar to hibernation, um, but they experience brumation, which is they're a lot more active in the in-between times um, and they are very reliant on where they're experiencing their dormancy for heat because they are cold-blooded. So that makes sense. Um, but it is different than hibernation. There's also a state called estivation, which is more for like snails and I don't know, bugs go through estivation. It just kind of depends on what kind of animal you are as to what sort of torpor you go through. So it's so complicated. It's very complicated and I don't have the time nor the energy to go through all of it. So if you're really interested, the internet's your friend. That's all I got today. We are not a peer reviewed source here on Conservation Queen. <laughs> yeah, as you may have not. And please correct us if we're wrong. We love hearing corrections. That's true. Um, but you might be wondering like, what are some things we can do to help the forests? Like, are they doing okay? No, um, just like every other forest, they're, we're experiencing a lot of deforestation. It's not only rainforests, it's all forests, um, including our temperate deciduous ones. Uh, for those guys, it's not so much clearing for farmland, but there's a lot of logging that's happening. So being able to use alternatives to logging, um, like using bamboo products or finding things that can replace wood is a really great way to help using recycled paper uh, or paper that is certified to the forestry sustainable council sustainable forestry alliance is that, what that one yeah it says fsc on the paper when i buy it and it says 100 percent recycled so that's what i look for yes um so a couple other things are also threats to forests including forest fires now i'd like to point out there's a difference between natural forest fires that are naturally occurring and like not naturally occurring forest fires. Like somebody left their campfire for too long. And Correct. So if you're going camping. Down in the forest. There's also going a camping. difference too between that and controlled burns as well. Yes. Yes, yes. absolutely. Yes. Controlled burns are federally regulated and are, like it says, controlled, meaning they're only going to burn a certain amount of space and they've got the firefighters out there. Also, shout out to all the wildlife firefighters because they're heroes. It's true. They're crazy, man. Like, they're awesome crazy um so when you're going camping or if you're just out in the woods if you are doing things like smoking building campfires any any sort of like fire burning ants which you should not do but any of those things that you're doing make sure you put your fire out if you are leaving the site at all so it like if you want to like cover up some hot coals make sure you're doing it safely, make sure there's a fire pit, make sure there's something around it to keep the forest safe because a lot of animals are losing their homes because of these devastating fires. And with climate change, it makes the fires even greater. We've had devastating fires in the Amazon, in California, in Australia, all of these places we could be doing better if we didn't have as much, uh, as many people being irresponsible with forest fires. So Put your smoke of the bear hat on and say that only you can prevent forest fires. <laughs> I'm sorry. That was a bad imitation, but I... No, it was great. I loved it. Oh, you got the point across. That's good. Right, we got it. We got it. Um, the last thing that you can do, and this is, I think, the easiest one, is practice something called leave no trace. So many hiking trails, many walking trails go through deciduous forest areas. Uh, and so leave no trace is the idea that when you are outside, you're going to do two things. You're going to take only pictures and leave only footprints. 
So that means don't take anything out of the forest that you do not need. Like, do you really need that leaf? Do you really need that flower? Do you really need that rock? It could be an animal's home. It could be an animal's livelihood that you're taking out. So it's better to just leave it there. And then uh, leave only footprints, which means that anything that you pack in, you pack it out. The only exception to the take only pictures rule is if you see something that does not belong in the forest, like trash, you can take that out because it's not supposed to be there. So that's one thing you can do. Leave no trace also includes staying on the path. The paths are in parks for a reason. It's so that you can help minimal, minim, oh my gosh, minimize the impact done on the deciduous forest themselves while still being able, being able to explore the beautiful places that we have. Um, and it also helps keep things under control. And so like, if we do see something wrong, it's easier to get there. And leave what you find, right? If you see like a cool tortoise and you're like, that'd be a great pet. It's not. Maybe don't do that. <laughs> don't do that because that's part of the problem. Um, some ways that you can also help are if you live in an area with deciduous forests, maybe go to your local park and see if they're doing any invasive species cleanups. We didn't get into invasive species today, but there's a whole episode about it. And you can see like how much of an impact that those can have. So removing those kinds of invasive plants can be really, really helpful. So that's going to be my challenge for everybody today is go out there and be nice to the forests. That's our conservation connection, the conversation. It is. Um, <laughs> we don't really have any uh, big announcements this week, I don't think. Um, like I said, we already had our giveaway, so we'll be looking forward to maybe doing another one of those at some point this year. That would be pretty cool. Um, as always, if you aren't already following us on our social media, you can find us at Conservation Queens Podcast on just about every social media that exists. Um, we have our Twitter. Patreon, we've got our website, we've got, we've got everything. So we got our Patreon, yeah, you can become yeah, a Beluga babe and get a sticker and it's see true. pictures of our pets. It's true. Uh, so with all of that, thank you so much for joining us this week, everyone get out there, stay sustainable and farewell. Goodbye. Bye. 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 <laughs>